0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 95, Human Trafficking in American Schools. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stehoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, that is; uh, those are things we're always trying to do. And one of our big focuses is to be able to study the issues and to be a voice on that. And we're going to really do that today in a big way because... I think one of the things that I know you feel strongly about, and I'm I'm so glad that the show allows us to do this, is when a good resource comes out in the world that is going to be helpful to educate people on human trafficking and how we can prevent it and serve victims uh, and all the things we talk about in the show, that we like to highlight it if we can and get the word out. And so we're going to do some of that today with this new report and uh, and hopefully it'll be of value to people here, not only this audience, but even if it's not directly related to you, undoubtedly you know someone that is directly related to what we're going to talk about today and you can be a champion for us in helping get the word out.
1: I think we have an incredible platform because we have listeners in most every state and in many other countries. And a lot of the principles that are part of the Human Trafficking in American Schools report are principles that are going to apply no matter where you are teaching or where you are a school-based professional.
0: And so uh, before we get into the details of what's in here, could you um, give us a little bit of an overview of Where's this report from, and and who is it aimed to? And then we'll we'll look at some of the details.
1: Well, this report was actually written by um, Janae Luttrell out of Grossmont Unified School District in San Diego, hmm. who has been working on issues of commercial sexual exploitation of youth and children in her own school district, and has become quite adept at identifying kids who are potentially already being trafficked or identifying kids who are being groomed by traffickers. So she's quite the expert and brings a wealth of um, training information, sample protocols, great ways to engage school-based professionals. And I I think one of the things that she is especially good at is helping us figure out how we as a community can fit into some of the structures that are
0: required in administration in schools. And so is this report put out by her personally, or has she partnered with other organizations? How does, it, how does it come to pass that this is now available to everyone?
1: This report was funded out of a grant from the federal U.S. Department of Education. Oh, and okay. And they have a department that is called, um, oh my goodness, it just escaped me, Safe Supportive Learning engagement, safety, environment. And so when you find the link for the PDF, and I'm so excited that it is not 155 pages, it is 12 pages. That's this doable. is something you can read. Yeah. So you find the PDF, you'll see the other resources that are on, on the website for safe, supportive learning. So let's talk a little bit about why this report was so important the idea that child trafficking is happening in our own backyard is something that America's pretty much just waking up to. And in the, the idea of teaching teaching the community to identify kids uh, who are victims instead of perpetrators requires a shift in our mentality. Um, we have often all been in conversations, riding in the car and somebody sees a a young um, girl dressed scantily on a corner and makes some kind of remark, something like this. Well, I bet her mother doesn't know what she's doing. Or Mm. if she's dressed like that, what can she expect? And lots of those kinds of comments. What this report is calling us to do is to look at these kids as victims who have been groomed and their immaturity has been exploited to take advantage of what we talk about often, that their brains are not done developing, and they don't have the kind of risk management decision-making skills that you and I have. So it's incumbent upon us as the adults in their world, as the school-based professionals, to make sure that our environment is safe and is equipped to identify if there are traffickers that are beginning to groom our students and intervene at the earliest possible chance.
0: And I'm hearing some similarities to the conversations we've had before about law enforcement and when, with law enforcement professionals of making the shift from looking at the, um, the the people who are involved in this of being the you know going out and, and doing arrests and 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 um, and and looking at those folks as the perpetrators but but looking at it looking at them as victims and changing our perspective on how this has been traditionally handled and so it sounds like that same that same mental model we need to also look at when we're thinking about school children too
1: and people are using the term victim-centered approach So we don't look at them as perpetrators, even though, and this makes the problem a little more complicated, they often feel like they are rule breakers and that they're going to be in trouble, and they don't see themselves as
0: victims. So when we're thinking about the professionals that this report is aimed at, I'm guessing there are some obvious um, people in those roles, so principals of schools, of course, teachers in schools. Uh, In addition to those, Sandy, who else is this report really aimed at? Well,
1: I love the terminology, school-based professionals, because we do kind of limit it to teachers and principals, but there are school nurses, there are guidance counselors that are helping kids decide what um, classes they're going to take. What about the food service people that see the same kids every day in line and know that they don't like spinach or they absolutely love cauliflower? That... That school-based professional is going to notice if a girl starts wearing a different brand of clothing that she previously could not afford, or she's getting her nails done and she just is acting differently and now she's hanging out with a different group, or she shows up with a tattoo um, on her neck or her arm, and that, that person in the food service Aspect of the school becomes just as important in helping us identify victims as the teacher or the school nurse.
0: So it really could be anyone in a professional capacity that's working with children in a school district or in a school or, or, or any really any environment where kids are in, involved in a structured activity. And. One of the things I think this report will help us
1: do, you've heard me talk about this before, that I really feel that schools should require training. And a a bill was just passed last week in Congress to require two hours of online training for all embassy personnel around the world on human trafficking. Mm. Wouldn't it be great if we were able to see a law passed that required all school-based professionals to learn how to identify an at-risk and possibly
0: intervene for a child
1: that is already being abused.
0: So we've talked about the fact that there's only 12 pages in the report, and uh, which, is, which is great because if you can be concise, it gets the message across much more clearly, Sandy. What are some of the key messages that she has for us and also for school-based professionals to be aware of when we're thinking about this issue in the context of schools?
1: Well, one of the first things is they point out how many runaways are likely a victim of human trafficking. And the infographic they included is one out of eight. So homeless kids, runaway kids are at a higher level of risk And how do we begin to identify them? Well, every school district, because of the McKinley-Vento Act, has a homeless student liaison. So one of the first people I wanted to get their hands on this report was the homeless student liaison for for the entire county. And in fact, I'm very happy to report that she's gonna be on a panel at Insure Justice next March. Oh, great. So that that's an exciting aspect. Because these are the kids who are really, they're like the kids who are on the edge of the cliff. We've gotta build the fence fast before they fall off. But there are kids further back and we have a lot of myths that are part of how we think we understand what's wrong with those kids. So, in the report, they take some time to deconstruct the um, the aspects of the victim centered approach and deconstruct our perceptions of who these kids are, because we often look at them and categorize them and not ask the next question. I, at the Orange County Department of Education conference that we recently did, I interviewed a young lady who had been rescued and then had been part of the Orange County Department of Education schools. Uh, That's where she finished high school. And when I asked her how we could have done a better job intervening earlier, she said, if someone had asked me what was going on when I didn't get my homework done Hmm. instead of just sending me to detention. If someone had asked me where I was and why I didn't make it to school, I would have told them and they would have known. She was 11 years old. Wow. When she was commercially sexually exploited as a child. And all she said, if someone would have asked me, but they assumed because she came from a difficult situation, dysfunctional, that um, this was
0: just normal. So there's a lesson for all of us in not just situations of human trafficking, Sandy, but any situation where someone's doing something unexpected of not making the assumption that may or may not be correct of why someone's behaving the way they are, but being willing to have the courage to ask the next question, the second or the third question, especially with young people to find out what's going on.
1: Yeah, detention and suspension. It was really um, interesting to learn that one of the techniques, and I'm kind of getting a little out of order in the report, but during the presentation that one of the techniques that the traffickers use is they instruct um, a student to um, break a rule and that will get them suspended for two to three days. Mm -hmm. And they'll have them do that on Thursday so they can, don't have to go to school on Friday and Monday, maybe Tuesday. Well, what are they going to do with that four-day weekend? Their pimp, their trafficker, is going to take them to another city, and um, the school will not be any wiser because it won't be considered absenteeism. It'll be considered punishment. So we have to deconstruct and look at this as a victim, not as a student with a behavior problem that needs to be disciplined, But we have to start thinking differently from a victim-centered approach. And that's thats earth-shattering. And it's not as easy as it sounds for you and I sitting in here with no kids who are um, breaking lots of rules and they look like perpetrators. How am I going to now start treating them like victims?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that's a real hard line for a guidance counselor or a dean or a principal to walk. In that situation, and so I think the the message here is is just having the courage to ask another question or two i, and I agree. it sounds like at least for that student you talked with that that may have really made a difference in uncovering some information that it's so easy to assume because we do we all have seen and worked with kids who um you know where that is a there truly is a behavior issue going on but uh but man that's that's just it's enlightening and scary to know that that's going on
1: and giving them another option. That's positive instead of it's like, really it's logical for us. Once we understand the, the uh, strategy of the trafficker that giving that girl a suspension is not in her best interest. And it's actually, part of of the exploitative process and they've actually manipulated our rules to use against us mm. because our real purpose is for her to get an education and I believe sincerely we want that so we fall into into their traps and so we learning to be smarter about Um, if she breaks a rule or if he breaks a rule, maybe there's a different way of um, dealing with that instead of a discipline um, consequences type strategy.
0: Well, and I think there's a a call to action here even for those of us who are parents too, Sandy, Mm. of being willing to ask that question or to say something. Um, I remember a few weeks ago, we're looking at schools for uh, one of our kids right now and one of the schools we're looking at has older kids too. And, I remember going to an event and the parents were talking that, and one of the parents said, you know, they really appreciated that the culture of the school was such that her daughter was involved in something fairly minor by comparison of what we're talking about today. But another parent had seen something at school and had thought to call that other parent and just say, hey, I just want to give you a heads up on something I saw, maybe nothing, but I wanted you to know about it. And she said, you know, I really appreciated that because it wasn't something I otherwise would have known about and it could have been one of those things that we went down a path that we didn't need to go down. and so um, so I think that there's a there's a call to action here for us as parents too of saying, you know when we see something on in a school premises or with another child and many of us who are parents interact with other other families and other mm. kids all the time, is to you know at least be willing to ask a question or call something to someone's attention and you know perhaps it's nothing, but you never know maybe it is maybe there is something going on that that would be really. Life changing for that person or that parent to have that information.
1: Yes, because if somebody sees something and doesn't say anything, the consequences can be very serious.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and we could spend a whole episode on uh, the whole bystander sy- syndrome. Of <laughs> That's right. How unlikely it is a lot of times for people to do something when they feel like someone else should be taking action. So it's. It, I think our, our bias here is to get us all thinking of being the person who does say something yeah. so that we're not left where no one did anything.
1: And and I think one of the things for us to start to feel more comfortable with that this report addresses is how do we really figure out when to identify something? Uh, what are the risk factors and the indicators? And the idea that um, I don't know what it looks like. It, it doesn't look a lot like all of the movies and and dramas that are contrived in television. So this report gives us several risk factors that are associated with child trafficking, the lack of personal safety. And if you think about that perspective, a child who's living in a very transient um, situation, maybe they're living in a motel, and they sit outside on, on the steps to do their homework, and because the room is too noisy and the kids are getting ready to go to bed, the younger kids um, can be approached by a trafficker who says, oh, you can go use the desk in my room. There's nobody there. Um, that kind of lack of personal safety is is an issue. And then isolation Kids who are isolated and don't feel like they belong during a stage in life where belonging is one of their biggest goals. They want to be part of a club. They want to have best friends. Um, everybody dresses alike, even though they're saying, oh, no, mine's, I'm different. I'm really different. Mm-hmm. So, this uniformity um, issue, when they're isolated, that increases their risk. And kids with um, homelessness issues, we've discussed that already. And probably the basis for this cycle a lot is poverty. Um, if there is a familial cycle of poverty and there doesn't seem to be a way to break that, that puts that child just by their circumstances they were born into at higher risk. Mm-hmm because they don't have what the other kids have and they don't have as many options so when someone gives them an option that looks attractive um they're not going to listen to the red flags we taught them because what they have nothing to protect they're going to take what is right there in front of them that looks attractive Uh, family dysfunction is often part of this and you'll see reports that Um, show that a significant number of the FBI innocence lost kids that are rescued every time they do um, a sweep are often, 50 to 60% are often runaways from foster situations. Mm. Um, Substance abuse, and this is an area that I think needs a lot more attention because I think we can integrate some of our drug use prevention strategies with um, child sex trafficking prevention strategies because they're so connected. And you know, I've told the story many times that the very first victim I ever served was a 14 year old boy um, admitted on the night shift in the hospital where I was a pediatric charge nurse and his mother and stepfather were selling him for their substance abuse issues. Wow. Mental illness, learning disabilities, developmental delay, and we talked about how to talk to kids and find out if there are risks of trafficking back in podcast number 92. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of lays out some of those issues really well, so we won't go down that road this time. And then if they're living in an exploitive sexual environment where pornography is on is being shown, where uh, a child five six years old is routinely um, seeing R rated and worse movies, that hypersexualization at an early age predisposes them to being to normalizing that kind of exploitation. Mm. And then if they don't have social support, which is the place that the school based Um, Professionals really thrive because we can create that sense of social support. We are the ones they see every single day. And when we see, we identify lacks in their in their development, we identify lacks in their families. Um, We can probably build stronger support systems right on our campus if we have figured out this constellation of risk factors. And that's kind of one of the things I really want us to understand. One of these factors by itself It doesn't mean that there's sex trafficking going on here, but it's kind of like learning to identify the Big Dipper. We learned how to do that probably in second or third grade, and we still remember how to put those stars in the right order. They're still stars all by themselves, but when you get them into a particular constellation, then you have something you can put your finger on. You can say, that's what that is. And then that takes us to the next piece of this report, which is really to figure out How do we begin to respond to this? And what I would like to do is for every school principal, every school district, I would like to see them have a one-page guide for all their school-based professionals, whether they're food service workers, janitors, teachers, counselors, school nurse. If they're the admissions um, secretary in the front office, whoever it is, I want everybody to know that if you see something, this is what you do. Because a lot of the confusion is, well, yeah, I know that, but now what do I do? Who do I call? Mm-hmm. And we often give the 888 3737 number. And then I was asked when I was doing a training where a teacher was, what. Can I do if it's a child in my classroom where I have to be concerned about privacy issues and I can't give out information about a minor to a hotline where I don't even know who the person is answering the call? Wow, that was a great question, and that's the answer to that is right here in this report. And what um, Janae Latrell has done is she has put together some sample. Uh, protocols that would start with issues where kids are um, suspected of of doing recruitment because, you know, the traffickers, they're really smart. They know that teachers are not going to let a 36-year-old man come on campus and make friends with a 12-year-old girl. But if they send a 14-year-old girl on campus with brand new shoes and she just got her nails done Um, That girl becomes very popular. And when some other girl says, wow, your nails are gorgeous, then she says, oh, my boyfriend pays for that. Do you want to get yours done? He'll pay for yours. Do you want to come Saturday? Mm. And so the recruiters don't look like the ideal recruiter in the movies. They look like the other kids. So when we start to see that, how do we actually respond? So in this basic situation protocol, the first step is to contact the on-site school resource officer to begin an investigation. And then it moves into um, how the investigation works, how the school intervenes, if if law enforcement is going to be part of that, and then what happens with... um, that reporting at the next level away from the school. So you have a protocol for people that are coming on campus to recruit your kids.
0: And Sandy, forgive my naivete on this school resource officer. Is that a police officer? And if so, is a police officer in every school? Or what would a what would a school based professional do who does not have that resource?
1: Um, a school resource officer it, it functions a little differently in from county to county and state to state. And some schools okay. don't have a school resource officer, but they are law enforcement trained. They usually relate to the local sheriff's department or police department, but um, they don't have the same level of authority that a police officer would mm. have, or a sheriff's deputy. But every- They, they every, work, their authority is limited to the campus.
0: Okay, so, but a school or a uh, district would have someone, even if you don't have a law enforcement officer at your school necessarily assigned, right. there would be someone who would be identified as, as a school resource officer.
1: Right, okay. Right. And then um, and then the next um, protocol that is offered in this report is for a sus- suspected victim. Say that twice, suspected victim of commercial sexual exploitation. And that, again, in this protocol, calls for involving the school resource officer. Um, But you're also going to now pull in child welfare. Um, You're going to interview and find out what the environment was around this, how did this happen. You're going to look at safety issues on campus. And this is going to be the time when you start actually engaging with the victim or the possible victim and the who is the guardian or the parent and what um, do knowledge do they have or not have and then beginning to refer for appropriate um, services and then follow up, follow up, follow up to check on the status. What has happened repeatedly is that Uh, suspected victims may be moved and they leave one county and they come um, up on the horizon at another school. Mm. So having school-based professionals that are aware of this in every county, in every state, would improve the kids that are falling through the cracks because their traffickers move them around a lot. So then what happens if you actually confirm a victim of commercial sexual exploitation, you follow all the same protocols for investigation and informing parents and guardians. But now then, the services are set up for regular contact and decisions are made, child welfare helps with that. And the process of not just um, removing them from the victimization, but restoring them And making sure they have the resources they need to be successful to complete their education because that's going to break the cycle.
0: And the report here is really great on the graphics of really walking you through step by step in a very simple way of exactly what to do in each of these situations. And I think it's interesting, Sandy, that in each one of these situations, it starts with the school resource officer. So that's really a key relationship and a key starting point for school-based professionals to engage with that person so they can help. Help really guide them on this process as well,
1: and and one little um, tweak to that is this particular protocol was provided in a district where, and and the the basis for developing this was at an alternative ed campus Mm. where they always have school resource officers so if you're at an elementary school in an area where there is no school resource officer you're going to have a slightly different protocol many times it is the person who handles this kind of issue is the assistant principal or they have labels for um Um, outreach coordinators we don't hear about truancy officers anymore we've changed a lot of the terminology um, to be less um, um, negative Mm -hmm. so if there is no school resource officer then you find the next level that would have the authorization to begin to check it out just the investigation process finally when you finish reading this report, you're done on page ten. You get to page eleven because you had a lot of questions when you were reading this, and page mm-hmm. eleven is full of publications and resources to take you to the next level to help you understand of uh, the healthcare sector, runaways, um, human trafficking resource center. All of these kinds of things are are going to be available, as well as resources for trainings and um, services that you can bring to your particular school.
0: and Sandy, I, sh- I should say looking at this report and you've looked at it in more detail than I have, um, as you can tell based on some of my questions. But it this really strikes me. And like you said, a lot of the reports are hundreds of pages long. There's, there's lots of really important information. This one really strikes me as really being put together well for the audience in mind. I've been very concise, very well organized, graphically even really um, uh, nice to look at. So it really it makes sense. And it's something you can internalize really quickly. It's probably the best one I've seen around that, actually.
1: It's fabulous. And kudos um, to um, Janae Latrell. She did a great job. Um so my call to action for this, if you're a teacher, download this, print this, take it and keep lay it out in the teacher's um break room, uh, begin a conversation, talk to somebody in administration, how are we going to be involved in distributing this and how are we going to bring in training on our campus? And the idea that, well, our school is in a place where this doesn't happen. Um, that's a really naive thing to say. Mm-hmm. And we, we want to create safe, healthy environments on all of our campuses. And being aware that there is a risk reduces the potential danger and harm for all students on the
0: campus. Well, and as we said up front, Sandy, there's a call to action here for all of us. So if, if we work in a school Uh, obviously what you just said is a very clear call to action. And if we aren't working in a school, uh, certainly all of us know a parent, uh, a teacher, a principal who we could pass this report along to, perhaps even share our conversation today and share the link for this report. And that could be the starting point for really empowering people with the information that they'll need in order to make this make this report really get out there and be successful for people and helping us to really prevent it with some of our youngest people.
1: I really challenge you to share this podcast on your social media. Um, Send it to your friends, uh, your nonprofit friends that are doing work like this so that we get this message out there. We need to
0: protect our children. We certainly do. And we hope that you'll take our challenge to do that. And of course, the show notes are always available for This podcast and every podcast at gcwj.vanguard.edu. And if you have a comment or question for us or feedback, feel free to either reach out to us by email or by phone. Our phone number is 714-966-6360, and the email address is gcwj.vanguard.edu. And we are part of the Global Center for Women in Justice here at Vanguard University. Sandy, thanks so much for bringing this report to us today. And I'll look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Thank you, Dave.